0: Thank you very much uh, for your introduction. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me to this uh, exciting uh, conference. I'm sorry I cannot speak German, so I speak in English. Let me start my talk with this graph. In my uh, 1994 paper and 1998 Book, I argued that collectivism destroys trust. And uh, partly uh, based on the, the comparison of between uh, Japan and the United States, trust is higher, general trust is higher in the U.S. than in Japan. And I was criticized that uh, my argument was based on two nations. But now we have almost 50 nations. And this relationship between individualism, collectivism, and the level of uh, general trust, there is a strong relationship between the two in the kind of a contrary, opposite direction to the common sense understanding of collectivism. So uh, when I show this graph, maybe uh, almost half of the audience usually is surprised. Because that's kind can, can of uh, uh, intuition. and about uh, half of uh, the audience think that it makes much sense 15 years ago most people were surprised because that was new the idea was new but I think now it's more accepted so the the reason why some people is a surprised by this is the idea of collectivism. <laughs> See, collectivism is a matter of values which put the uh, group's interest above individual's interest. If you think that way, why people who care about groups, collective, don't trust? other people. And uh, if you think that uh, individualism is uh, a kind of values for individuals' welfare over collective welfare, why people trust more in that kind of uh, society? but another surprising finding is that the national level relationship does not exist at the individual level. Okay? So this is uh, there is kind of a collectivism, individualism scales, psychological scales, measuring values, and the correlation between those scales and general trust. They don't correlate much. There is a weak, depending on the scale, weak positive correlation, which is consistent with uh, many people's common sense. But the, at the national level, the pattern is completely opposite. So how can this this occur. That means uh, the reason is that factors that are responsible for the national level correlations are the ones that introduce systematic variance at the national level but does not introduce systematic variance to individuals within each country. So that is a national level correlation is produced by the macro factor, not individual's values. That's what uh, this discrepancy suggests. This is a kind of schematic idea why macro factors produce macro level correlations but not uh, individual level correlation. This is uh, two s- elementary school classes taught by uh, two different professors. I mean, teachers, and those two teachers differ in teaching effectiveness. So, poor te- teacher when the class all students in one class is taught by an incompetent teacher. Do not learn much in math or language. Both math and language performance will be high in a class taught by uh, an excellent teacher. So there are many classes and many levels of teaching effectiveness of the teacher. That produces class level correlation between our uh, language and math. But within each class, teaching effectiveness of the profess- I mean, teachers should not make any variance, I mean, correlation. Because all people, all students faces, face the same teacher. This is how the individual level factors and macro level factors uh, operate. So what are is the important macro factor which generates uh, individualism, collectivism and general trust? It is the institution, okay, not values. Values vary between individuals. But all people in one nation face the same institution. I use the term institution in a broader broad, uh, uh, context. Say, so like a democracy. All people in one nation face the same political system. Okay? So that shouldn't produce any effect at the individual level. But the countries differ in the levels of democracy. So democratic institutions can produce uh, correlation at the national level. But not individual, so to me, I have been uh, arguing this for the last twenty or thirty years that individualism and collectivism are not matter of social values, cultural values, and they are they represent uh, differences in social institutions. How social order is produced vary between uh, a collectivistic society and individualistic society. So, I'm going to talk about this difference, but before talking about that, let me uh, talk about the difference between trust and assurance. Trust is basically a risk taking. I trust you because if you are completely uh, controlled by me, I don't need to trust. I need to, to trust someone because there is a chance that the person may betray me. Okay? So the fact that I trust you is actually a matter of uh, risk-taking. Assurance, what I call assurance of security, means lack of risk. So uh, to to present you an uh, intuitive kind of understanding of how trust and assurance differ, I invented an imaginary machine called the 1,000 needle machine, OK? You know, our Japanese kids say, if you tell a lie, you'll swallow 1,000 needles, OK? So this thousand-needle machine automatically put a thousand needles into the person's throat if the person tells a lie. Okay, so if a person has this thousand-needle machine, everyone can Everyone knows that he won't tell a lie. He won't lie. This is assurance. Assurance is the expectation of benign behavior based on the incentives. Trust is based on the expectation of human nature. So, But this is an imaginary machine that does not exist. But in reality, we have 1,000 needle machines, socially constructed 1,000 needle machines. This person, Peter Clark, uh, used to be a good friend of mine who died uh, a few years ago in an automotive motorcycle accident, but uh, he did a very interesting study comparing uh, rice trading and rubber trading in East Asian country. Those two commodities are traded in in very different ways. Rice is traded in open market between our strangers. Rubber is traded between a particular plantation owner and a particular buyer, quite often extending generations. So why those two commodities are traded in different ways? The reason he found was that uh, trading of rubber involves a uh, high risk or high chance of being uh, uh, cheated. The quality of rub- raw raw rubber is very difficult to discern, and till uh, it is processed. So there is a chance that uh, you can be cheated on the quality of rubber. Whereas the quality of rice is easy to detect. Probably even I can tell the quality of rice if it's cooked. (laughs) So the reason why rubber trade is conducted between commitment relations is that that if you uh, trade rubber with strangers, there there is a chance that you can be cheated. So trading uh, through long term relationship is a way to reduce that uh, chance. So that is a socially constructed thousand needle machine. If the long-term relationship is, if you cheat, your partner will stop dealing with you. And in a society where all, almost all tradings were conducted through our uh, commitment relations, once you are kicked out, there's nowhere else to go. So it's better to behave honestly. Whereas uh, rice is traded on open market, why not uh, between a rice buyer and a particular rice buyer and a particular farmer? If you do, you have to pay opportunity cost. You lose a better trading opportunities. So it's basically a trade-off between a uh, transaction cost and opportunity cost. To reduce uh, the chance of being cheated on the quality of rubber, you pay the cost of uh, finding a better partner. So when the, the chance of being cheated is small, it's better to reduce the opportunity cost by trading on open market. So when this is a situation when you need a thousand needle machine. And stable trading relationship, establishing stable trading relationship, is actually a socially constructed thousand needle machine. So, to me, this is, this is uh, uh, incentive-based assurance of trustworthiness. If you betray in that kind of situation, you ch- choke your own throat. So, uh, with that protection by the legal system, that, uh, that kind of assurance is provided by uh, stable social relations. And uh, throughout the uh, history of human evolution, that was the only source of social order, protection. Once you are out of your own group, you are vulnerable. You have to run the risk of being, uh, being killed or being exploited once you are out of your, the security of your own group. So in that kind of situation, people behave, in a trustworthy way, because threats of exclusion from the system of mutual protection and support networks exert a strong dis- disciplinary power over its members. And uh, this kind of a system, which I call a collectivistic institution, works only when excluded people have no alternatives to turn to. That means all relations are close to outsiders. That means if you are kicked out, the cost is extremely high. Then people behave nicely to avoid uh, being kicked out. So I'm a sociologist and a psychologist. So far I I was talking about As a sociologist. Now I'm becoming a psychologist who is interested in uh, human psychology. And the cultural, what the cultural psychologists are now talking about, cultural differences in psychology, to me, is uh, differences in adaptation, how to adapt to a particular institutional arrangement. So to adapt well to this system, to survive and prosper under this system, individuals need to be accepted by people in the community. And thus, they have to be uh, sensitive to to the monitoring and evaluations from people around. Am I doing, yeah, just on time. So a uh, collectivistic social order and institution requires that the social relations are closed to outsiders such that those who are excluded have no alternatives to turn to. So if many groups are organized this way, the opportunity cost of staying in the group, not exploring, is law because no one else accepts you. So, uh, but uh, legal protection, including effective enforcement system, reduces the need to need for the collectivistic social order that is provided within the closed relations. And so, if there the legal legal system is provided, you don't need to uh, depend on the group or strong ties for protection. And uh, those legal system frees people to pursue opportunities outside uh, the closed groups and relationships. That is what I call as individualistic social institution basically the rule of law, which allows for individuals' pursuit of opportunities. That's why, ha, why I call this individualistic institutions. Without that kind of protection, people cannot freely leave the, the security of the social groups. So this is another Interesting graph. The red dots. I used a World Value um, Survey measure of uh, general trust and uh, World Bank uh, dataset about uh, order and stability and uh, rule of law. Basically, uh, legal constraints on the government. So a high constraints on government, so It's basically, a, uh, under the citizens are under the protection of the law, and in that kind of situation, social order increases general trust. But under in societies where that kind of a legal constraints on the government is law. That means uh, rulers can uh, freely behave without being constrained by the law. Then the level of social order is not related with uh, general trust. So in these countries where Citizens are not protected by the law they have to protect themselves by forming uh, strong groups like mafia I mean mafia is this kind of organization that developed I mean private government in a sense that pro- protected it's a system mutual protection when uh, the Sicily was controlled by a foreign kingdom king. And that kind of organisations prosper when the protection by the law is destroyed, like uh, post war Japan, Yakuza prospered and uh, after the collapse of Soviet Union, Russian Mafia uh, grew. So, uh, now the psychology part. So, under the collectivistic institution, what the cultural psychologists call uh, interdependent self-construal emerges as an adaptive uh, behavioral pattern, like... Uh, People have have the belief that humans cannot survive once they are separated from others. This is actually uh, what uh, cultural psychologists call interdependent self-construal. And they have to develop a sensitivity to negative evaluations from others. And mistrust of others outside their mutual support system. This is a lack of trust, general trust. And uh, in that kind of situation, individual's behavior is controlled by the social thousand needle machine. So uh, people who are living in in that kind of social situation has to uh, allocate attention, not to, to the focal Actor, but to the surrounding social environment. This may be uh, too technical for non psychologists, but uh, this is basically what the cultural psychologist is arguing. There's uh, cultural differences in psychology between uh, collectivistic and uh, individualistic societies. If I had time, I can show you a bunch of interesting. uh, findings, but I'm afraid I don't have time to do that. And uh, people do not they they have to suppress their own feelings to avoid being uh, uh, offending people around uh, them. So this is what usually called uh, a cultural values, but that to me it's a, just a adaptive strategy, psychological strategy. And uh, individuals under individualistic social order or social institution, people come to a. Uh, Hold uh, the belief that individuals are free to pursue their own goals outside the protection and constraints provided by strong ties. This is what uh, cultural psychologists call the interdependent self-construct. And uh, that, under that kind of a social institution, risk-taking is encouraged. So you take risks to pursue your own goals. You can do that when the legal system protects you. Once when the legal system does not protect you, it's too risky, too dangerous to get out. So in that kind of a social environment, general trust is adaptive having a high level of general trust, the belief that people are not so bad. Because that encourages you to explore, to leave the security of your own uh, group and explore outside opportunities. So uh, the high level of general trust constitutes a part of um, the more general adaptive strategy strategy uh, i mean i'm using the term uh, in the biological sense not the economic sense not conscious decision making it's a behavioral pattern to individualistic social order so this is a typical uh way of uh conceptualizing a collectivism and in individualism as uh, varied cultural values people uh, care about the welfare of the collective that is collectivism individualism uh, where people care about uh, individual self welfare not the collective's welfare this is the cultural collectivism and individualism. Which does not explain why individualist societies are high in general trust. But if you conceptualize collectivism and individualism as social differences, institutional differences, like a collectivistic Uh, protection, control, uh, you have to be protected and constrained by the strong ties. And uh, this uh, individualistic social institution is uh, encouraged individuals' opportunity-seeking behavior. So, this is my way of uh, contrasting uh, individualism and collectivism as uh, distinct social institutions. So, here, in this kind of uh, individualism, you have to explore s- social relations outside your strong-time network. So, you need to express yourself. And compared to unique, I mean, it is quite often believed that uh, uniqueness seeking is American or the individualistic trade. But to me, more important is self-expression. Express yourself, otherwise people won't uh, come to deal with you. In contrast, in the collectivistic society, The most important uh, psychological trait is avoidance of negative evaluations from people around you. So I did a small study with a former student of mine by uh, separating individualism and collectivism into two components corresponding to to the figure presented you before, engaging in kind of independent, uh, interdependence. Collectivism means uh, harmony seeking and cooperation seeking. That is usually considered uh, uh, characteristics of uh, uh, collectivistic uh, values. But to me, more important aspect is rejection avoidance. I find myself feeling anxious if people are watching me. Always concerned about how other people's are eva- watching, evaluate. Here, harmony seeking is... Usually uh, called characteristics of the Japanese social values i very value maintaining harmony with others. And uh, this is uh, typically uh, typical inter- independent values, uniqueness. I'm unique, I'm, I have a distinct self. That is usually considered uh, trait of the individualistic social values. But as an adaptive strategy, you need to, uh, the most important aspect of individualism is express yourself. Assert yourself and express yourself and cooperate. So in a study we published recently, between uh, The difference between U.S. and Japan, engaging in that independence. Self-expression is much higher in the States than in Japan. That's usually expected. And uh, rejection avoidance, the big difference. Americans are low, Japanese are high. But this is a common sense view of uh, collectivism and the individualism. Disengaging uniqueness. That's no difference. Japanese are uh, uh, much preferring uh, uni- being unique. But uh, engaging interdependence, one, said, That is higher, even higher, in the states than in Japan. So what the people are confusing between uh, harmony seeking and uh, rejection avoidance. People just like a cookie. That's typical Japanese, which is different from uh, cooperation seeking. Cooperation seeking is mostly done by people who are unconstrained by the social structure, or the the network, and seek uh, cooperative relations with others. Three more minutes. This is uh, another interesting uh, figure coming from my own uh, study, this is general trust, low and high. And the the vertical line is income, annual income. And the general trust is not related uh, with income, among the opportunity-seeking, no opportunity-avoiding people, so, and but opportunity see- seekers, I, I I don't have time to explain this. But uh, for opportunity-seeking uh, people, general trust is highly related with uh, income, so it's an adaptive strategy. Trusting others. Trusting others is different from uh, completely trusting others. Trust and uh, careful, vigilant. Anyway, I don't have time to do this. So uh, this is a conclusion, some speculations. So uh, Japanese society now faces a decline in assurance, I think. Structure-based uh, assurance. And, but uh, we still don't have a high level of general trust. Traditional and collectivistic assurance of security is fading away. Because it's too costly. It incurs too much opportunity cost. But people are not ready for the trust-based society, backed up by uh, legal protection. Like uh, here in Japan, you always hear the term Kizuna. It's basically uh, strong ties. So people cannot leave the strong ties. And always call back on the strong ties. And 20 years ago, I hoped that the change from assurance-based society to trust-based society would come in 30 years. It hasn't, but there are 10 more years for my prediction to come. So for that encouragement of exploring opportunities outside the security of strong tie relations and the second chance for those who providing second chance for those who explored and failed. Those two will provide a key to the change. Thank you very much.
1: First of all, thank you very much again for this enlightening presentation.
0: It's straight on <laughs> to the no, podium. It's always interesting when you have so,
1: such a dense presentation and you don't have time to digest at least five minutes what you have just heard. You have no chance today, (laughs) (laughs) we can digest later. Okay, I I would like to speak uh, a little bit about um, risk and elaborate a bit on what it means and how societies and individuals uh, can deal or deal with risk and uncertainty. And I would like to start with uh, uh, a personal experience, then discuss a little bit the notions of risk to structure my presentation into two parts with risk calculation and its limits and the social dimensions to risk, and then with a short conclusion. And um, what I would like to start with is about ten years ago I was still a young father of two little children, and they produced a lot of sleepless nights to me. And I. it was really stressful, I drank a lot of coffee, and I used, I lived at the time in Canterbury, in Kent, I used to go to my parents to Germany. And so we did, it was uh, wonderful, we used the ferry, and I wasn't able to sleep at all. So we arrived safely with my parents, I thought, everything is wonderful, but in the night, I've got severe headaches. And I wondered, what's going on and what are the causes and so I asked my father and he said young boy no wonder sleepless nights stress escalating you must have headaches and then I thought oh but it's really bad and I thought okay uh, during the second night, I thought, something is wrong here. I called the medical service and they said, take some paracetamol, and it will probably get better. But it did not get better. So I visited a tripee the next day, and we tried to find out what it is. Because in Canterbury, it is, we have ticks, and they might uh, transmit uh, menentritis. So I mentioned that to the tripee. The tripee said, uh, you can still move your neck. So, no, let's wait a little bit, yeah, don't be... Next night, it was even worse. I thought it was really horrible. Tried paracetamol, it didn't, didn't work, so I went to the hospital the next day and said, please, could you give me something that I could sleep at least one night to get out of that vicious cycle and to find out what is going on. And they said, ah, you've mentioned something with meningitis. Probably... It's better we keep you here for a week and we check what's going on, because meningitis is very, very dangerous, and you should start treatment as soon as possible. So we will put a needle in your spinal cord, take some fluid out of that uh, to find out whether you actually have or not. I said, how safe? What, what, what's, it, what's the side effects? They said, yes, the side effects are usually at least one week's severe headaches. And uh, the other thing is, it's not necessarily sure that we find out. It can be an indication, but 70%, but don't know. But it might be an indication. It might help. Okay, so um, I thought, hmm, we have planned to have one week holidays with my parents, and probably my conditions are not that bad as I thought. And uh, the GP said, "Mm, "Yeah, still can move from the neck, so probably might not be that what's going on. But but they did not want to let me go. So they said, okay, you have to stay here. If you go, you have to sign a form that is against explicit medical advice. And I said, okay, what brought me here was I, so I can also leave, so I signed the form. But one of the nurses was so kind to me and gave me something that I actually could sleep, a very heavy sleep helper. So the next day, it was a little bit better. And um, I thought, okay, that looks good, that feels good. And I went to somebody else, a friend of us who does acupuncture and homeopathy, and try to deal with that sleepless stress symptom and it worked quite nicely. And the second time I went to her, we found out I actually had rubella. And the side effect of rubella is actually severe headaches. And so, I was surprised that, oh, luckily, it wasn't meningitis, obviously it's rubella, went over. But why I present this example is a different reason. It shows, shows quite nicely how in everyday life we have to deal with all kinds of knowledge sources and we have to struggle them. There is not an easy, we just go for science or expertise or so, there are many experts out there. And it's very important to develop a strategy and to manage these kind of things and that is really what I'm interested in and sociological sociological research is interested in as well. So we had the subjective expert judgment of my father. So probably there was a bit of trust involved here as well. Um, We had the medical knowledge based on population studies, but what does that say for a single case? So we don't know whether that is now the case or not. And we had the organizational risk procedures and the doctor because my feeling was probably that was a kind of when we let you go, we will be, and something happens actually, we will be in a mess. We cannot let you go. And so we have organizational procedures I put me in, and so I thought probably that wasn't very sensible. And so my personal everyday knowledge and experience bringing all that together and making a judgment. I would not recommend to anyone to do the same thing because that worked for me. But what I would like to emphasize is that this is really a relatively normal procedure we're doing again and again, and that is often not quite acknowledged when we work with these uh, ideas of there are um, scientific, professional, rational strategies to deal with these things, and we have the non-rational strategies of the lay people often linked to faith or hope. What we experience, what happens much more often, is something in between. We have heard about trust. I wouldn't define it as a rational activity. I would say it's something between rationality. But it's experience-based. It is not irrational. It's just reasonable. It is intuition, it's emotion, and so on and so on. And what is interesting is... um, that is not only the case with lay people and Holly Jones who died too young this year uh, did a number of studies not only with lay people also with uh, risk assessment situations, uh, with expert groups and they had the same issue. They de- produced a kind of practical reasoning and a pre-collage of bringing different ideas together in reasonable ways and I think Uh, one of his examples was a festival that was organized and they had different groups engaging in it and they had very different things to consider it was not all about possible accidents it was about income, it was about uh, uh, the city and how good it is for tourism and so on and so on all kinds of these things came together and obviously power and values as well Okay, I think that example is also very nice because it shows that a number of uh, concepts are coming together here when we speak about risk. So I'm always very worried about the concepts we are using. So my question would be what concepts have you used regarding trust or collectivism or so? I think a lot of questions. So so what is your idea of risk? So is it just like danger or threat? Is it part of a statistic Calculation that something is only a risk as long as it is part of such a calculation? Is it that technical definition of risk, risk and event, probability, damage and event? Or is it the possibility of an undesired event as um, Evan and Ren have defined more generally? Or the last thing I would like to suggest is. It is part of a decision with opportunities and possible harm. And I think actually these things here are somehow relatively similar, and this is a bit different. And I would like to use that uh, to structure the uh, rest of my presentation. And the idea is there are two perspectives referring to risk, one is risk considers risk as an objective entity which can be calculated and rationally controlled. And risk questions are mainly questions of knowledge. And because we are focusing on risk as a kind of thing, it is always implicit, implicit that it has to be reduced. that it's something bad. And then we have that idea of decision making and risk taking. And that implies much more that decisions and risk taking is in in principle uncertain, but there is a possibility of a gain as well as a loss. And when you think about it in a linguistic way, when you think about risk just as a noun, it's just something bad. When you think about risk taking, you refer to much broader ideas of uh, who takes the risk, who has burden to burden the risk, who's affected by it, what is the possible gain, and so on and so on. So I use that a little bit to distinguish between approaches who focus generally on this, that is not only within sociology or psychology or so, it goes across disciplines. But these issues are connected somehow in real life. Okay, let's think back and support these ideas a little bit by, uh, uh, by the origin of the ideas of risk. And I refer here to Max Weber and that idea of the rationalization process during modernization. And he quite nicely uh, um, defines or or, uh, the rationalization process as that shift from a more savage style of dealing with issues like imploring the spirits to a calculative strategy. And that is quite... um, Sorry. And thinking a world of something that can be calculated and managed is in the core of this first idea. And think about... We started um, there... um, Okay, I should... You think about that book of um, Bernstein and Hacking. Bernstein is about... um, the idea of the development of statistics, hacking as well, and they both show how the idea of risk is connected to probability theory and statistics. And this is an example just about statistics and on the basis of the data you have collected in the past, you can make predictions toward the future. But there is an issue with that, and that is quite interesting when you ask statisticians like Spiegelhalter here, who said, oh, all models are wrong but some are useful. Why is he saying that? He says that because often people wrongly assume that what they find in the statistics is how the world really is and the predictions they make uh, are the truth. And so what, what they make is these are models and they are part of the world and that um, they... they have restrictions and they are only make sense in a particular context what is defined. And that becomes quite an issue when you think about risk assessment. And I refer here to Mark Bergman because I'm in Australia, so a well-known Australian ecologist and he's engaged with risk assessment in the context of ecology. And he was a bit critical or became a bit critical regarding his colleagues and said, yes, there is a sharp dichotomy between real, or some colleagues think there's a sharp dichotomy between real risks and perceived risks. But others think such a dichotomy does not exist really. And he criticized a little bit that the people who stick to that and try to refer only to the mathematical method- models hide their normative and other decisions they make behind these models. And he uh, says, okay, Uh, quite honestly what should happen is uh, risk assessment what is usually considered the mathematical part and risk management what is usually considered the messy part where political decisions and such things come into play should, should come together. So risk assessment the statistics and mathematical part, the modeling should come together with the decisions. And you have to embed both things because they rely on each other. You can only do good models when you have a good basis for them um, and decisions. And he uh, formulated then uh, even further what is a standard position in risk governance is that we would like to see, and it's necessary to involve uh, more of the people who are bearing the risks, who are involved uh, or affected, and they, they should get involved uh, in uh, risk governance and uh, decisions about risk issues. Okay, so statistical probabilistic risk is applied in all kinds of contexts, in medicine, in psychiatry, and criminology, and science, and so on, and so on, and works as long as the future is similar to the past, and as long as there is an agreed purpose which guides the selection of the relevant variables included in a model that there's a kind of agreement regarding values and these things. Uh, For new and complex risks, and that is where Beck's work uh, originated from, uh, such as climate change, genetically modified food, terrorism, uh, global financial crisis, or what else you might like to think about, No direct extrapolation from the past are possible and we change to kind of scenario planning, expert judgments, and uh, well-informed guesswork um, when we would like to deal with these things. This is a well-known quote about this idea of new risks and where the problem is that they are extending the usual limits in time uh, and place and that it's difficult to deal with such risk with insurance or just with the usual scientific approaches because they just escape these kind uh, of strategies. So what we see is we have increasingly more knowledge and technical abilities to control our future, but our knowledge contains more uncertainty or say it's less precise and we know more about what we do not know. And we have to find strategies to deal with that. So think about climate change. So we know climate change is coming, but we don't know how fast, how it will look like in practice, how it will regionally develop, and so on. Knowledge has also become specialized and complex. We know all these disciplinary uh, boundaries and Uh, Now everyone is speaking about interdisciplinary research. Whether that works and how well is a good question. But regarding knowledge, when you think back to my example, and the participative approach is always about to get access to different kinds of knowledge, to local knowledge, to lay knowledge, to different disciplines' knowledge, and bring that together. And that is important to deal with issues like climate change, but also like cancer, like... Uh, international migration, whatever kind of issues you might like to think about. And what is even worse is we are increasingly exposed to unexpected side effects of past decisions. So we are finding out, we did something in the past and we have now to deal with it and we found out about climate change, we found out about DDT and other issues and the good question is how, how to deal with these things. And we have already seen has entered the political agenda here, the precautionary approach, what um, uh, lowers uh, the bar for concerns, uh, restricting uh, innovations going forward. There's a strong approach, which says it must be reasonable scientific doubt, or it might be even uh, lay people who uh, allow to formulate or stop that kind of uh, dangerous innovations. New risks require collaboration, that is one of the key issues of Beck when you think about climate change, international terrorism also, and he's uh, introduced that concept of cosmopolitanism. Oh, there's an S too much. But the idea is obviously to deal with these mega and complex risks you need much more international collaboration as uh, in the past. Um, we have another idea here from uh, Matthias Gross about society as laboratory, and he says, "Okay, when there's so much non-knowledge out there, how can we deal with it?" And the idea is to deal with the real-life experiments uh, in society, like in a laboratory. We have to take care about the side effects. We have to take care of what's going on. We have to be sensitized for possible surprises, and the question is how we get there. Okay, one thing is uh, actually to observe, to look for it, to ask lay people, to ask local people, and take their concerns seriously. And that became here, I mentioned that, participative participative approaches became a kind of um, golden rule in, in many areas, not just in risk governance, but there are also a lot of issues with that, what I do not discuss here but um, it's not that easy and it not always works that easily and well so the second idea I would like to speak about now is about risk as decision and that goes back to the semantic analysis here uh, of Nicholas Luhmann and he claimed yes, historically in the Middle Ages there risk uh, was invented as a, a way to describe a new experience, a socially new experience. And that new experience was uh, that certain advantages are to be gained only if something is at stake and it is a matter of a decision that as can be foreseen will be subsequently regretted if a loss that one had hoped to avert occurs. I'm um, Just mentioning it here, this is just, think about the far, uh, the the traders, the merchants uh, and that experience of you have to send out three ships to get one bag and to make a fortune and these ideas so he refers to that stuff and when we look how economists like Keynes phrase that idea of risk taking with the entrepreneur, it is referring back to the calculative stuff and then what, what he only can think about is yes there is an innate urge and animal spirits what makes us taking risks but there is something more and that is what I'm interested in and these are the social forces that shape why people take risks how it influences our risk taking so he has all that rational stuff here but he says yes but that is, that's not real the basis for that does not exist but he has n- not more to offer than the animal spirits Okay, so what's there? I thought I haven't brought up that example about the Mind the Gap when I went to the UK from Germany and everyone spoke about Mind the Gap between the platform and the train. But at least as interesting is the uh, compulsory uh, helmet-wearing in Australia. I I, I was surprised, but look, Australia, six- and eight-cylinder cars, people drive relatively bad, they ignore, and they, they're not much uh, paths anyway, so they drive on the street, so it's highly dangerous, so they protect themselves, so it makes a lot of sense. But obviously you know from Europe uh, possibly a different approach. And what is interesting, there are no more fatal accidents in Holland than in Australia. Actually, it's a bit higher in Australia than uh, here. But there might be a reason for that, and that reason is they have a totally different approach to that. And the idea is possibly uh, there's something else going on here. And I thought about that in a society, in a highly individualist society like in Australia, you have to protect yourself. That is expected. In a more collectivist society as here, when an accident happens at an intersection, they examine the design of the intersection and make huge studies to find out what is wrong with the design of the streets that that could happen, the accident. No helmets. Yeah, you had. it's a totally different approach. And so obviously the broader cultural context, institutional context shape what we experience and, how, and what we think should change. I skip that because I'm running a little bit out of time. It's interesting why it's only the Germans who think Fukushima is a good reason now to fade out of uh, nuclear power, while well, all the other, all my colleagues from the UK and France and so on, they, they are mad that will never work and so on. Or think about uh, the face mask wearing in Japan. <laughs> but you might might like to comment on that uh, uh, later on. Okay. In sociology, you usually refer in this context to the work of uh, Mary Douglas. And she tried to make sense out of that uh, cultural uh, differences uh, uh, with a typology, the grid group typology. In general, she says, risks are socially constructed. uh, With our social institutions, we choose the risks we are concerned about. And this grid group typology uh, produces four types. from two two dimensions, grid as a degree of external regulation of a social uh, group and group dimension as a commitment and solidarity within the group. And you can see here examples uh, for these four types. So when we start with individualism, that is like Wall Street traders, neoliberals, college students doing economics, they all believe in the market and they have that kind of individualism worldview, where group coherence is is weak and uh, the external uh, influences or regulation is also relatively weak. When you go up to hierarchy, examples would be the military or the Catholic Church, where you have strong regulation from the outside and you have strong uh, internal um, um, cohesion. When you go... um, Egalitarianism mm-hmm. is something that's a bit different. So you have um, very strong commitment, personal commitment within the group, but the external regulation um, is relatively weak. And then you have fatalism, and here you have... They, they are not rather part of a group, but they, are ex- they refer to a strong... yeah. Um, externally regulated community but they are standing outside the, the main uh, community like often the elderly, the poor peasants and so on and so on and you can use such a concept for example to, to think about the different responses to climate change which are suggested by different groups and be aware of the, the, this is all just an ideal type idea what should be seen as an instrument to observe Uh, what's going on. So we have, in a hierarchical perspective, you would say, okay, the issue with climate change, we need global regulation and top-down governing of these issues. Egalitarianism perspective, you would think it must come bottom-up, so it's the wrong lifestyle. Individualism, you would say, okay, there's over-regulation, we would like to trust in the market, and we have fatalism, it doesn't made any sense to do something about it anyway. Okay, obviously, these are ideal types and extreme types. And in real life, it only works uh, when these different types are somehow combined in a reasonable way. And that is the essence of that kind of approach that all these types are needed for a reasonable management uh, of risk. So that is the conclusion for that. Okay. I moved not only to the UK, I moved to Australia and I realized there's something else what shapes social and individual experience of risk and I was going to Australia the first thing and the most exciting is go to Tasmania so I went camping, went to the campsite tried to get some drinking water and what I expected was a kind of clear sign what tells me drinking water, not drinking water nothing at all, you can read it um, it says, um, yes, this water has not been treated or quality tested. and may not meet the National Health and Medical Research Council's guidelines for good quality drinking water. But although risks to health are low to ensure water is safe for drinking, authorities suggest it should be treated rolling boil for at least three minutes before drinking. So I thought, okay, don't know. That is what I would usually do when I take water from nature. But okay, thank you very much for the advice. But I think something else is going on here. And what is going on here became even more clear to me when I moved on with my family and my three little children trying to climb the cliffs. And I found that moderate hazard area warning. And they told me I should care for my children. That is what I do anyway. I should Uh, meet the hazards on their own terms, so I assume that is a slippery surface and so on and so on and so on. But the key is here. Yes, so I'm wondering, this is your responsibility. So why is it that in this country always they try to hand over the responsibility to me? Why they do not take on the responsibility for providing proper paths where I can safely move with my family? So, okay. Obviously, there's something behind that, but it seemed to me it is an indication for a general culture what is probably different from what I uh, have expected from Germany. And this kind of responsabilisation is found in many, many areas. And I just quickly would like to refer here to uh, social policy in the US and the UK, and there we have a very strong shift of responsibility to the people who would like to have social support and they have to do things, they have to train themselves, they have to prove that they have looked for a job and so on and so on and so on. And it's very interesting because this culture has shifted so far that we see increasingly more studies that actually prove that Beck is right with that claim that people increasingly experience The output, uh, the effects of economic crisis as an individual crisis, and they make themselves responsible when they are the ones who lose their job and not the others, even though there is a general economic crisis. Good question, what that means. Okay, and there is one other thing I would like to mention to you because I referred at the beginning to risk as statistics and the calculation probabilistic calculations and these kind of things invaded sometimes silently and influence what we are doing and how we are experiencing our life Um, you might be able to read it Morland leader i live in Morland, and i came just from back from tasmania and saw this article about this very mature climber You see, 78 years old, who wanted to climb the Himalaya and wasn't able to do so because he was no longer able to get insurance. And what happened was the insurer said, okay, in the past we had up to 79, but we shift the policy, it's just too high risk. We go down down, uh, to 69. And probably, I don't know, it was too expensive or whatever. But what is interesting, they ask an interesting question here, and that is... uh, Should travel insurance be determined by age or on a case based, and so on and so on. So what's going on here is a company makes decisions on economic basis and influences what this guy or others can do in their leisure time. So it's very interesting. There are many other areas where such things silently happen. Another issue... It's uh, a little bit outdated because we have a new technique now to determine whether um, genetic abnormalities in fetus. But for a very long time, we had the triple test. And there was a lot of research about that, how this new technology to test pregnant women regarding the health of their fetus affects what's going on how we deal with risk. And because now it becomes a decision, they have to make decisions. But these tests was not very sensitive. You see, cats only 70%, has 5% false positives. But what happens was that the termination of fetuses with a Litch Down syndrome have risen sharply after the test was introduced. What's the reason for that? The reason is just because the test was there, the women were anxious that they would be made responsible if they would give birth to an unhealthy child. And in particular, middle-class women were not prepared to have a baby with Down syndrome, what would probably um, um, produce some difficulties to make an occupational career or so. So their virtues and what they expect from their family They had an ability to make a judgment. And they had also their anxieties. And they had that tension between I killed my baby and um, feeling safe regarding giving birth to a healthy child. So you see, the new technologies, the new risk technologies produce a particular kind uh, of knowledge that produces a new reality. Okay, and there was uh, Michel Foucault and uh, followers like uh, Mitchell D, Nicholas Rose and others, Pat O'Malley, uh, who developed that, that observation that we have two things. We have increasingly more calculative technologies involved in the governing of societies as well as an increasing a use of a neoliberal model of the self as a new style of governing of societies. And risk has become part, that kind of calculative risk calculation has become part of governing of societies. And in the past we had punishment, yes, in the sovereign society, don't want to describe what you see here, it's too horrible, we have disciplined society, control and surveillance with the panopticon, we still have all these things. But we have that concept of providing knowledge and supporting the norm of self-improvement. And this combines that kind of probabilistic knowledge and that kind of uh, neoliberal approach, um, mainly neoliberal approach, but not only um, in a particular way how societies are governed nowadays relating to risk issues. Okay, I must have spoken much too fast. I'm coming slowly to an end. Mm -hmm. But there's something else. There are other contexts and areas where risk-taking is framed by social processes, in particular here, organizations. The very early study of Carson, 1982, showed in that book the other price of Britain's oil that workers who are often in a vulnerable position take risks not to lose their job against the safety procedures, the formal safety procedures set up of the company. But the company actually encouraged them to do so. So you have a world, a real world, Uh, or a formal world of regulations and the real world, what what actually happens under particular conditions. And this has to do with the power relationships in these companies. Another interesting example has been Wegen's study regarding the Challenger-Launch decision. And she um, argued that the political pressure put on NASA supported that the decision-makers for the uh, launch of the Challenger uh, normalized risk taking, normalized risky decisions, and even riskier decisions. And it worked quite well for a a while, but at one point it didn't. And so that kind of risk taking, what was on an acceptable level, shifted to an unacceptable level, what at one point uh, led to a disaster. We have something else and that is very, very important. It is often neglected in uh, more um, formalized risk research. That's the role of identity in risk taking. So when people deal with risks in everyday life, they relate that to their identities. And I have two examples here uh, from the context of work as well. A Swedish study on railway, railway maintenance workers in Sweden and they ignored safety procedures just to do a good job as a professional and how they're doing it to secure punctuality of trains, punctuality of services, because that is the general overall norm of their company and they would like to be a good worker and cut edges to make it happen. And similarly, something here with professionals working in Canadian non-profit social service organizations. They have that idea of um, a helping organization and they're encouraged to help as much as they can and they obviously do it and feel good with doing so somehow, Um, not always, Um, and expose themselves to risk by doing so unnecessarily. And so you see here's a mixture between the identity and feeling good and being a good professional, and sometimes it is used, sometimes purposefully, sometimes not, uh, to exploit or put uh, workers at risk. And then obviously health is a very big sector for risk issues, and uh, it's always interesting to see that we have that knowledge that smoking and drinking is unhealthy for the developing fetus. But still, there are a lot of women doing it. So the good question is, why is that? And then we have all these campaigns which assume uh, they just do not know better. But that is often obviously somehow wrong. They know that it's dangerous. But they engage in different strategies to justify why they keep going, drinking or smoking. And there's an interesting bit. The middle class mothers, they drank, the working class, they smoke. And the middle class mothers, they drink a little bit and say it's just with a meal, a glass of wine, that's all right. And the others, uh, the working class, they, they, in that study, they have these different strategies. One is, okay, a lot of examples, yes, health is actually kind of lottery game. My first child was very healthy, I smoked heavily. Uh, the second... I stopped, and that has all kinds of health issues, so it wasn't a good thing, so with the third child I will go back to... Okay, Yeah, that, that's the rationale. You're laughing, but it works. Then the other logic was, um, okay, I'm so stressed out that I had to stop smoking. That cannot be healthy for the child, and even my GP recommended I should occasionally smoke a cigarette to get out of that stress. And so you have all kinds of, of justifications, Um, to make it happen. So, and what is interesting here, it's not the lack of knowledge as such. It is these strategies what have to do with every life situations. When you think about smoking as a coping strategy for all kind of experienced stress in everyday life. So it has little to do with pregnancy as such. Pregnancy is just another stress factor. So there's something more common And so if you would like to change and to engage with these people, obviously you have to look, engage in a much broader picture. Okay, so conclusions. I have outlined two dimensions to understand how we deal with risk. Change in knowledge and new risks, growing complexity, uncertainty, dealing with non-knowledge, And the social processes of decision making, power, values, identity, ethical issues, which come out of technical developments. And the diversity of strategies, so already have developed precaution, experimental societies increasingly use, cosmopolitanism is developing, participative approaches, and we also have that idea of openness and flexibility and managing different identities and look what is the the context, what is the broader picture, what has to be considered. And if you really would like to efficiently to respond to issues like climate change, it's not just to tell people that climate change happens. When you go to people who live close to a flooding area or so, you have to engage in that everyday life rationalities to get good responses. And so that is my conclusion that it's not enough to stick to one or the other. We really have to bring the social back into that knowledge-focused picture. Thank you very much.